River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy the sermon from lead pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. We're in a series, many of you know this, uh, that we've entitled Restore. And a few weeks ago, we addressed the issue that it is on the heart of your Father in Heaven to restore financial peace in your life. And it's a, that's an area that so many of us face or have faced great challenge in. And uh, to this afternoon at 5 p.m., uh, we are providing a... Um, an exploration, I guess is the best way to put it, a preview of uh, a journey called Financial Peace University. Uh, it's uh, basically taught by Dave Ramsey uh, via video. And I want to encourage you, if this is an area of your life where, you know, the Lord has kind of revealed you struggle uh, and you're looking for the peace of God to find its way into your life here. Uh, I want to personally just commend the, the, the journey. I, I can't tell you how much uh, Dave Ramsey helped Kathy and I uh, years ago kind of get some things under control uh, and really adopt all of the counsel of God concerning our finances. And uh, it, it really changed uh, the way we were living. And uh, so I know it can, it can for the lives of others because it really just approaches uh, that issue in an unbelievably biblical way. So uh, just if, if that's something going on, you don't have anything to lose but maybe about an hour and 15 minutes uh, to just explore this evening. You won't, don't, you're not making a commitment by showing up to take the journey. So I encourage you to do that. Um, to, today, today's message for me is a little bit different. I don't know how it, you're going to experience it. Uh, it's not like a, a message that I've done before. And... Um, so, and, and even saying that, I feel like I'm going to set up a false expectation. I'm not, I'm not trying to do that. Uh, it's not like, oh my gosh, you know, kind of thing. But uh, I experienced uh, preparing for this and call it receiving what, from the Lord what I felt like I needed to do differently than I ever have before. And the, the topic that God gave me uh, literally months ago for this day was this, this issue of justice. I actually thought that part of the topic was going to be different than it's ended up being uh, over the course of time. Um, uh, today, uh, all across the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, many churches are really focusing on racial reconciliation. And uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, though this is a message on justice, that's not going to be the focus of the message today. Uh, we addressed that back last September. I'm not saying it doesn't need more. I'm not saying, you know, one message, we killed it and, you know, there's no more struggle between the... I'm not saying that. Um, it was just an issue that God put on my heart then and God raised something up different today about justice. And so, uh, this is what I want us to think about. God has a plan to one day completely restore justice, not just to humans, but to all of creation. Uh, all of creation has experienced a great injustice. And, uh, but God also has plans for justice to come in the here and now. He has a plan for how that will come about and, and be brought uh, in the here and now. And I, I want to begin with a passage that I, I pray is becoming familiar to you. It is, it, it is kind of what I consider to be my go-to passage from the Old Testament when I'm trying to help someone understand what is uh, our God-given vision as a church. And our God-given vision as a church is simply that we would become a community of disciples of Jesus who are living the up in and out life that our Lord both modeled and taught his disciples to live and to teach others to live. And in the Old Testament, uh, a kind of a biblical vision for that is found in Micah chapter 6 verse 8. And Micah chapter 6 verse 8, uh, Micah says this, He has told you, O man, what is good. And then Micah kind of asks a question that gives a great answer in the process. It says, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, some translations say mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. 
And so for us around here, we use a visual image called the, 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 the discipleship triangle to help us think about this rhythm of life of what it means to live this way. Uh, here we see uh, Micah telling us that it means to walk humbly with God. And that's the up relationship, our upper relationship uh, with God. And then it tells us to love kindness or mercy. And we, we know that the only way to really show mercy is to be in a deep relationship with someone. And so we have to communicate that. And we see that as we do life in, life together. And then God calls us as his people to do justice. Do justice. Now, why would God instruct his people to live a life that is always doing this thing called justice? Why is God so concerned, you know, uh, about justice? Well, I want us to be captured out of the gate because it is just who he is. God is just. Psalm 92 says this, the Lord is just. There's no evil in him. Psalm 145 tells us that the Lord is just in all of his ways. When the Old Testament prophets speak of the day of the Lord's return, justice is always the centerpiece set on the table of his coming. It's always there. Uh, in Jeremiah, the prophet, God spoke through him. It's the way that he's going to be known. It's going to be known. His name is going to be known this way. In Jeremiah 23, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. In other words, the kingdom of David. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Now in a, in a couple of minutes we're going to show you just how deeply those two thoughts righteousness and justice are woven together in the biblical narrative so much so that they're almost inseparable and at times hard to differentiate. It's hard to tell the difference sometimes even in the language. They're just so dip, uh, deeply linked. Now it goes on in verse 6 to say in his day Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely and this is the name by which he will be called. Speaking of the one who will lead that movement. The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. Jeremiah 33 echoes that same thing that one day he's going to come and be known as the Lord is our righteousness. Now understanding the passion that God has for justice to come in the here and now so that he gets glory is critical for those of us who seek to follow him. We, we, he, he wants us to see why this is so important to him. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, it, it, it says this. It says, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. The great, the mighty, the awesome God. I mean, that, that is, that's a description there. I mean, just an incredible description. And then it says this. He, that great and awesome and mighty God, God of gods, Lord of lords, he executes justice. Here's who he is. This is what he does. He's all about justice. Our father wants to be known as a God who brings justice over the face of the earth. Psalms 146 is a great psalm about the justice of God. And it begins in verse 5. It says this. It says, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in him, who is, keeps faith forever. It's just describing who he is. And then it tells us again, this is what he does. He executes justice for the oppressed. The Lord sets the prisoners free. Now here's the deal. Our Father wants to be known to the world. He wants us to know in this way, but he wants the world to know that when you see the blessing of righteousness or justice breaking out in the world, God is at work. He may not get credit for it. He may, get, may not get named for it, but God is at work. So what I want us to do today is I want us to dive really deep into God's word and look at what the Bible says and what it means when it speaks of this issue of God's righteous justice or God's just righteousness. And I want to do it a little differently than I normally do. Normally, Tuesdays is my study day. And I just try to hide on Tuesdays and just dig into uh, as much of God's word as I can relate it to whatever the, I'm supposed to address on Sunday. And uh, I, I, this week has been a little strange, but I got in about a good six hours of study on Tuesday. And uh, I worked it out so that I thought we could really dive into the whole counsel of God on this issue. It takes between about 12 and 15 minutes for me to unpack that here. That was on Tuesday. Wednesday, in my email, I subscribed to several blogs. One of the bloggers sent me a video. 
And in less than six minutes, they did such an unbelievable job of unpacking the whole counsel of God throughout the whole of Scripture uh, that I decided to let them do it instead of me. So I'm cutting nine minutes out of the message. Okay? So everybody said, Amen! The, um, so here's what I want you to do. I want you, in just a second, we're going to roll this video. Um, there are some definitions that they're going to cover that are in your notes. There's some words there, Hebrew words. They're going to cover the definitions. So I want you to see if you can figure those out. We'll review them after, after the video's over. And also, I want you to look for the message of the gospel in this video as it relates to righteousness and justice. Okay? Let her roll. If you were a praying mantis, it would be socially acceptable to devour your mate. And if you're a honey badger, you have no regard for other animals. You don't care. If you're a panda with twins, it's normal to abandon one to take care of the other. But if humans do any of these things, we would call it wrong, unfair, or unjust. Yeah, why is that? Why do humans care so much about justice? Well, the Bible has a fascinating response to that question. On page one, humans are set apart from all other creatures as the image of God. Yeah, God's representatives who rule the world by his definition of good and evil. And this identity, it's the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. All humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. And that would be nice if we all did that, but we know how the world really works. And the Bible addresses that too. It shows how we are constantly redefining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others. Yeah, self-preservation. And the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them. And so in the biblical story, we see this happening on a personal level, but also in families and then in communities and in whole civilizations that create injustice, especially towards the vulnerable. But the story doesn't end there. Out of this whole mess, God chose a man named Abraham to start a new kind of family. Specifically, Abraham was to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Yeah, doing righteousness, that's a Bible word I don't really use, but what comes to mind is being a good person. But what does that even mean, being good? The biblical Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah, and it's more specific. It's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's about treating others as the image of God. With the God-given dignity they deserve. And this word justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. It can refer to retributive justice. Like if I steal something, I pay the consequences. Exactly. Yet most often in the Bible, mishpat refers to restorative justice. It means going a step further, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. Yeah, some people call this charity. But mishpat involves way more. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. So justice and righteousness are about a radical, selfless way of life. Yeah, and you find this idea all over the Bible. Like here, in the book of Proverbs, what does it mean to bring about just righteousness? Open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. And what do these words mean for the prophets, like Jeremiah? Rescue the disadvantaged and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And like here, look in the book of Psalms. The Lord God upholds justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, and sets the prisoner free. But he thwarts the way of the wicked. Whoa, he thwarts the wicked? Yeah, in Hebrew, the word wicked is rasha. It means guilty or in the wrong. It refers to someone who mistreats another human, ignoring their dignity as an image of God. So justice and righteousness is a big deal to God. Yes, it's what Abraham's family, the Israelites, were to be all about. They ended up as immigrant slaves, being oppressed unjustly in Egypt. And so God confronted Egypt's evil, declaring them to be rasha, guilty of injustice. And so he rescued Israel. But the tragic irony of the Old Testament story is that these redeemed people went on to commit the same acts of injustice against the vulnerable. And so God sent prophets who declared Israel guilty. 
But they weren't the only ones. There's injustice everywhere. Yeah, some people actively perpetrate injustice. Others receive benefits or privileges from unjust social structures they take for granted. And sadly, history has shown that when the oppressed gain power, they often become oppressors themselves. So we all participate in injustice, actively or passively, even unintentionally. We're all the guilty ones. And so this is the surprising message of the biblical story. God's response to humanity's legacy of injustice is to give us a gift, the life of Jesus. He did righteousness and justice, and yet he died on behalf of the guilty. But then God declared Jesus to be the righteous one when he rose from the dead. And so now Jesus offers his life to the guilty so that they too can be declared righteous before God, not because of anything they've done, but because of what Jesus did for them. The earliest followers of Jesus experienced this righteousness from God, not just as a new status, but as a power that changed their lives and compelled them to act in surprising new ways. Yeah, if God declared someone righteous when they didn't deserve it, the only reasonable response is to go and seek righteousness and justice for others. This is a radical way of life, and it's not always convenient or easy. It's courageously making other people's problems my problems. This is what Jesus meant by loving your neighbor as yourself. It's about a lifetime commitment fueled by the words of the ancient prophet Micah. God has told you, humans, what is good and what the Lord requires of you is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. How many of you feel cheated because we didn't have popcorn? Anybody? No. The, I'm going to try to get that video up on the city uh, this week so that you could maybe take a look at it again. Just real quickly, want to run back over those Hebrew words because they're so very important to just kind of grasp the meaning. Uh, the tzedakah, this, this righteousness as it is mostly translated, was that ethical standard that has to do, you think relationships, think how, how you rightly relate between people. That, that's what you need to think of when you think of the word righteousness. And it is rooted in understanding that every person on this planet bears the image of God. And they were created for dignity and we, they deserve it. And we need to see them that way and treat everybody with ultimate dignity. Mishpat is the word that is often translated justice, in, uh, mostly in the Old Testament. Most often, the Bible here, when, it, when you see that word, think restorative justice. It's not just, you know, sending someone to prison for wrong behavior. It is restoring the victims. It's helping them up and out of the oppression that they have experienced. It means I'm going to take extra steps. I'm going to go above and beyond to try to change the systems that allow something like that injustice to even take place. And then the rasha is this idea of guilty, most often in the scriptures referring to being guilty of participating in, in injustice, uh, whether you do that passively or actively. Now, as we've seen, God is just. And he calls his people to be on mission with him to address every injustice in this fallen world. To become champions, to root out injustice uh, that's core and central in our cultures and, and go after the systems that allow those things to be propped up. Things like racism or things like abortion or things like human trafficking. We go after those and we seek to destroy the systems that allow those things to stay propped up. And that's why we keep pressing into those as a church. One of the things I'm so grateful for is the way you guys responded so generously at Christmas um, when we took up the collection in, in our Christmas Eve offering to combat and stand against human trafficking. And you, that one night, you guys just out of your pockets gave about $5,000 uh, that went to the International Justice uh, Mission for the purpose of combating injustice in our world, but also to provide pathways that are gospel-centered for for the restoration of the victims of human trafficking. And so I just want to thank you for the way that your hearts responded to that. 
Now, I, I think I told you before, I thought I was going to be addressing a particular social injustice when this message kind of first came to mind, but the Lord changed that along the way. And I need to say this, I'm going to try to say some things without saying some things. Uh, I'm going to, I'm, I'm attempting to be sensitive to parents because I know at times we have children in our midst. Uh, but I want you to hear me say this, please don't think I am candy coating this issue or softening on it. Uh, if you think that you have completely missed the intent of my heart. So when you hear me say something that's kind of related to a strong issue, I'm going to encourage you to just multiply that in your mind tenfold. And if you'll do that, we will have connected. Okay? Just, uh, I, I want to say that that way. Now, I believe that in the last four months, we have witnessed, even experienced, one of the greatest cultural tsunamis in decades. I believe there's been a sweeping uh, that God has done. Now, it's created some unbelievable turmoil. Uh, I believe that there has also been a great reckoning uh, in this tsunami. Now, I personally, personally believe what's happened is we have, in our culture, seen the Lord God Almighty move with sweeping justice in our culture on behalf of women like we've not seen for a long, long time. Now, God has not been given credit for it. Other people have been credited for it. But I believe any time you see a sweeping move of justice in our land, it is the Lord God Almighty, especially when you see it coming in the high places. Leviticus chapter 26 verse 30 says this. The Lord says, I will destroy your high places. And I will heap up your dead bodies and the lifeless bodies of your idols. And I will reject you. In Ezekiel chapter 6, it says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, will bring a sword upon you, and I will destroy your high places. Now, since mid-October, there have been more than a hundred prominent men in our culture's high places. In media, in education, in government, who have been accused of harassment, and abuse, and in some cases, uh, brutal physical assault. I mean, it has just been sweeping. Now, it all started, based on what I know, uh, with this guy by the name of Harvey Weinstein that I had never heard of before. Apparently, if you were a Hollywood insider, you might have known that, but I'd never heard of the guy. And several women came out accusing him of everything from harassment to brutal assault. And it launched a movement in our culture on social media called the hashtag MeToo movement. It just, it blew up. Because finally, people started believing what was going on in our culture. And what began to, to surface was this idea, it had been, an, the, the quotations, open secret for decades. It had just been something that was floating around out there. And these women started sharing these, these true life stories. And they were bringing scores of men out of darkness into the light. Men's names that we recognize like Al Franken and John Conyers and Roy Moore and Kevin Spacey and Dustin Hoffman and Charlie Rose and Matt Lauer. A bunch of other names. Here in the Carolinas. Some of you heard about Jerry Richardson, owners of the Panthers. And how uh, there were four Panther employees who received significant monetary settlements because of inappropriate workplace actions by, by Jerry Richardson. And he has since had to put the team up for sale. There, there is a quaking that is going on across our land called this hashtag Me Too movement. It's, it's not only reached into the present, it's reached back into the past. And it has other prominent men in power shaking. And it's also crossing gender lines now. The movement has changed that way. It has been deeply disturbing. And these are not isolated cases. It is widespread, it's unchecked, and it is really systemic. It's a kind of evil that permeates our culture. I read statistics as low as 60% and as high as 90% um, from surveys that were done of women who say they have been harassed in the workplace. On October 15th of 2017, when Alyssa Milano sent out a message that said, if you have been harassed or assaulted or abused, uh, just hashtag me too. 
She went to bed that night and when she woke up the next morning she had 30,000 replies. 24 hours later, 12 million. 12 million. Now that movement has moved across 85 countries and millions and millions and millions of people have texted that. And judgment has come. Some of y'all will re maybe recognize this cover of Time Magazine. Time Magazine named the Silence Breakers as the 2017 Person of the Year. And what they're saying is that these voices launched this incredible movement. Anthropologists, cult those who study our culture are saying that this has one, been one of the most rapid high velocity shifts in our culture since the 1960s. And they write, women have had it with bosses and co-workers who not only cross boundaries but don't even seem to know that boundaries exist. Not even aware that there are these boundaries that should exist in a society. Now, I want to go ahead and deal with something that is an elephant in the room when we talk about this. This is real. It, it, it is real. And it crosses gender lines. Now I may speak from a pers certain perspective, but this crosses gender lines. Now, th there are those who believe that if you're being treated this way, if you're being harassed or assaulted, that what you should do is you should get so angry enough that you will fight back or in the workplace just quit. Now I want to say something folks. Sometimes we have to begin to be humble enough to admit that we don't always understand the complexities of such wretched issues. You know, I, I've heard some people say about the people of North Korea, well, they should just rise up and they should overthrow that dadgum dictator. Okay, that's a simple answer to a really complicated question. And, and we have to get to a place to, to say, I don't always understand. See, the scriptures tell us that the way that you judge others, God's going to use that same measurement to judge you. And so we as God's people need to be slow to rush into judgment. See, we don't understand the fear that some people face when they think about their future, their livelihood, their career. If you're a single parent mom, hanging on by a thread, living paycheck from paycheck, from paycheck to paycheck, the power that you feel, that you experience, that the person who writes your check has over you is overwhelming. They can't grasp anything else. Dr. Cortina, who's a professor of psychology of women's studies at the University of Michigan, says this. She says, people will say, well, why didn't, why didn't she just report him? Why didn't she just leave? She goes on to say it's because they don't understand how complex this reason is why leaving doesn't feel like an option. And before you think, well, that's out there. Friends, the church cannot make light of this. Because it's, it's bubbling up here. See, when this kind of violence, to whatever degree, it becomes systemic in the high places in our culture, it will always demean... It will always hurt. It will always, it is always wrong. And as one person put it, kind of related to this mentality, there are different kinds of cancers. And there are different kinds of treatments. But it's all still cancer. All of it's still cancer. Now, here's one of the things that I love about this book. This book does not flinch on putting on public display the characters contained in it who failed on this issue. It doesn't flinch. It doesn't flinch on denouncing their behavior. It nails it, I mean it comes head on at these issues in the scriptures. And when you read the Bible and you think on this topic, you come to see that there is no place in God's economy for harassment or abuse or brutal assault of any kind. There's no place for somebody using their position of power or authority or influence to coerce or pressure somebody for what they might call a favor. There's no place in God's economy.
And what we have to do is we have to learn how to communicate clearly with people of the opposite sex. Now, the Bible is really clear on this, and I could take you to hundreds of passages. I just want to take you to one that is just so simple and so straightforward. The Apostle Paul wrote this to his young protege, Timothy, of how he should interact with persons of the opposite sex. And he says this, treat older women as mothers and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Anybody unclear on the simplicity of that? It's just, I mean, it's just, it's a blueprint for relationships. It says, treat older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, and do it all with absolute purity. Now, I don't know whether you get that, but that, that word for purity there in the original language has to do with being modest and chaste in all relationships and interactions that you have with someone of the opposite sex. That you need to be above reproach and, and there's no blame. And here's the really cool thing that I hope you're captured by. Did you see how Paul relates everything to family? I mean, he, he says, look at everybody that you come in contact. Just think family. And most of us in here would think, well, I get that. I kind of see that. You know, I, I, I get that. Treating people that way, not like objects, but like family. Look at, it, it says, Timothy, Paul's writing to Timothy and saying this. He says, when you look at a young girl, look at her and treat her like you would if she was your daughter. Or how you would want your daughter treated. It says, look at women who may be older, maybe, maybe could be your mother. Treat them as you were would your mother or as you would want your mother treated. He says, when you looking at a peer of the opposite sex treat them as you would your sister or how you would like your sister to be treated now many of us in here would say well that's it's kind of common sense it's kind of kind of given you know but here's here's the deal here's what's happened in our world there's this thing called compartmentalization that we're able to segment our minds and cut certain people off and see them not as family or members of the human family, but see them as, as objects of something for our pleasure and our pleasure alone. You know Matt Lauer? He has three kids. Harvey Weinstein has five children. This idea of integrating this, this idea was, was foreign to them. Paul concludes his words to Timothy by saying the ultimate goal is really simple, Tim. Just in everything be blameless. Timothy, be blameless. Now, I want to I address that, that issue of blame for just a second. Almost every woman who has ever written or filed a report or that I have spoken to personally who has experienced the trauma of harassment or abuse or assault, in whatever form it may have taken, they almost always talk about the emotional, spiritual, and psychological fallout from those kinds of advances. And they themselves wrestle with guilt. And they wonder things like, you know, did I ask for it? They, they, they wonder things, could I have deflected it? Could, could I have done more? Maybe I shouldn't make a big deal out of this. And here's what happens for those folks that are victims of that kind of, of abuse. What they do is they, they take on the darkest kind of shame possible. It's the kind of shame that comes when I feel like I am shamed for what you did. They can't not unown that because they, they had nothing to do with it. And instead of seeing shame belonging to the victimizer, they take it on themselves as the victim. Now please, please hear me say this. First, as your pastor... And then secondly, as a, a dad of a daughter, and soon to be a granddad of a granddaughter, pl please let me say this. It does not matter what you were wearing. It does not matter what you said. It does not matter where you were. It is not your fault. It is not your fault. When you received unwanted advances, you didn't ask for it. 
You do not own it. And it is always, always, always a big deal to God in heaven. It is a giant deal to God. And so because I know that any time this issue gets addressed, there are people who have been broken and harmed by this. And so I want us to take just a moment in our service to pray together. Okay? Let's go to the God of all healing. Let's pray. Father, we come together as, as a family now. And we're seeking you. And we are corporately asking God that you would just come and love any person in this room who has ever been victimized and let them know, God, how you have longed to set them free. God, let them know that you have grieved for them when they were unjustly harassed or abused or assaulted. That you have carried their pain since that day as sorrow in your own heart. And Lord, right now in this moment, we invite you. Lord, would you go to the depths of their despair, to their heart? Maybe to those places where they may still feel afraid or unclean or used or ashamed. And right there in those depths, God, would you just pour out your love that cast out all those fears? Would you pour that love deep into their souls? God, speak into their hearts. Let them know, oh God, that you accept them just as they are and that they can never lose your love. Nothing can separate them from that. Jesus, right now in this moment, I ask those who have been hanging on that pain, I, I ask you, God, to draw it out of them like you would a poison. That shame, God, draw it out. And Lord, would you fill those wounds with, with, your, with your healing balm, with your touch. Father, your word tells us in Ezekiel that when you sprinkle your clean water on us, you wash us and we shall be clean. In Acts 10, your word tells us that we should not ever call anything impure again that you have declared as clean. And God, in Hebrews, your word tells us that we are sanctified, that we are made holy through the offering of the body and death of Jesus Christ and that it happens once for all, forever. Lord Jesus, I pray for those who live with this shame or this guilt or this suffering that right now that you would bring streams of your living water into their lives, into every cell of their being, God, God, thank you that your living water washes us clean as white as snow. That every bit of defilement and all shame and all guilt for some are being washed away right now. And Lord God, I thank you for cleansing. Beginning on the inside and working your way out. And God, I pray right now for anyone who has been caught in this trap of despair that you would now help them see themselves as a new creation clean made whole by you it's in your name that we pray God and all God's people said amen now because I know that this issue is not handled completely with a prayer in a big room. I, I want to say that um, the leaders of this church care about this, these issues. And we want you to know that uh, there is help available and hope. And so if you find yourself continuing to struggle
continuing to need additional healing, we stand ready to help. Uh, I talked with Cindy Shirley, who's the director of our counseling center about this, just to say, you may get calls this week, and I encourage you to call the center. Uh, call one of the pastors here. We want to help. Uh, I know it's scary, but we want to help. Now, because I've done some reading and, and looking on at social media this week, I, most of you know I'm not a big social media guy, but I, I do kind of scroll through there. I, th I think some people call it trolling. Um, troll around in there. And I was looking at some of the responses that people have, and I know that immediately one of the things that as I was reading through and saying to folks who have been abused this way, harassed this way, that it's not your fault, that some of you were saying, well, Joe, now the Bible says stuff about modesty. And I want to say, yes, it does. It does. But that's a message for another time. But here's what the Bible also never does. The Bible never blames the victim. Never cast blame on the victim. The Bible and God himself is always trying to raise up those who have been victimized. And as God's children, we need to learn to do this in God-honoring ways. And here's kind of my last shove on this, this issue today. Because I think it's one of those things that still needs to be addressed because of this, this idea of it being an open secret, kind of everybody knows, you know, it's just been out there. What does that even mean? Well, here's what it means. It means we've been turning a blind eye. We turn a blind eye to political candidates because they want to accomplish our agenda. So we just let it slide. We turn a blind eye to celebrities because we kind of like what they do or sometimes they even make us money. We turn a blind eye to athletes because they help our teams win. And the truth about that is that is a sickness in our souls. And Christians are not immune to this. The church is not immune to this. Back in January, uh, I, I read a, a, a magazine called Christianity Today. It's probably the premier Christian magazine of the evangelical faith. It was started uh, by Dr. Billy Graham. And on January 11th of this year, Ed Stetzer wrote what I believe to be one of the most incredible editorials uh, about the church. And it was entitled this. It said, Andy Savage's standing ovation was heard around the world because it was wrong. I want to read you some excerpts from the article because it is unbelievable. Ed Stetzer writes this. He says, this week, allegations were made against Andy Savage, the megachurch teaching pastor at High Point Church in Memphis, regarding an event that took place 20 years ago when Savage was serving as a youth pastor in Texas. According to his accusers, accusers, testimony, then 22-year-old Savage had coerced then 17-year-old Jewel Woodson to participate in a sexual activity. Woodson reports that he immediately apologized after the incident, asking her to remain silent. But when she refused, according to her testimony, her church instructed her to be silent. Recently, Woodson tried to reach out to Savage a month ago by email. She indicated that she never heard back. Instead, immediately following her email, Savage confessed to the incident to his church on the Sunday. He did not deny any of the story and apologized for his role. And in response, his church gave him a standing ovation. As Stetzer says, it's a standing ovation that was heard around the world. He goes on to say this is confusing for several reasons. First of all, no one should ever receive a standing ovation when it comes to alleged abuse unless it is directed at the victim who finally had the courage to speak out. He also goes on to say that the second reason that this is perplexing to me is that Woodson notes that he's lying about how he handled it. While Savage announced that he apologized to her and her family and to that church, Woodson writes, he never came to me. I couldn't talk to him. So not only did he, we have this questionable uh, apology or standing ovation, but we have this problem with the apology. 
but also accusations that church leaders were and continue to be involved in covering it up and marginalizing the victim. Stetzer says, as I've said before, and I will continue to say, we are never to protect abusers in our churches. We are to protect the victims. He goes on to say that he understands the church's response that day because they didn't have the full picture. They didn't have all the details of the information. But this what happened. Once they discovered that, Andy Savage did step down until a full investigation can be done. But then, Stetzer writes, today, whenever this was written on the 11th of January, Andy Savage denied part of the charges, calling the incident consensual. He went on to indicate that he did not break the law for in Texas a 22-year-old and a 17-year-old can consent together. He labeled it an incident, did occur though he denies some of the key charges. And then Stetzer says this, a youth pastor does not have incidents with someone in his youth group, he abuses them. On this point, the church needs to speak out with absolute clarity. Instances such as these are not incidents. They are abuse. Now folks, this issue has been so entrenched in our culture for so long that Christian leaders are so confused by it that they think somehow their role is to protect the victimizers more than the victims. And we have to have a soul-searching, soul-sweeping inventory in our own lives by God alone. God has to come and we, we as God's people need to be crying out like David did, dear God search us. And if there is some evil that is systemic in me that I've missed when it comes to your justice, God, point it out. Show it to me, God. That first step has to be the step that we take if you and I want to become instruments of walking with God into bringing about justice in this world. And I want to very quickly give you three more engagements that I believe we've got to engage in if we want to see, if, if we want to see that come and if we want to be a part of what God wants to do. Here's the first one. We've got to be able to clearly identify and call out the issue. You've got to name it. You've got to do it clearly. And it needs to be in places right where you live, work, and play. But now, please hear this. To do this, you've got to walk closely enough to those who are being oppressed, those who are being victimized, before you start rattling off answers. We, we've got to move slowly in this. We've got to start by coming to really know what we don't know about the issue. We, that's where we've got to start because there's so much that we don't know. This will require that we look deeply into our own lives, but also into the governing and social structures that we're facing to see if there's systemic evil in them. We've got to look for that. Then we've got to dig it up and root it out. But all of that starts with a choice to humble yourself. Humble yourself. Many of you know Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. You know what verse 7 says? Do not be impressed with your own wisdom. When we come to issues like that, don't think you know everything about the issues. You don't automatically have all the answers. And before you start making solutions, you need to fully understand the problem. And so it starts with a humbling of our own hearts choosing to look. Secondly, that I would encourage you to do if you want to live a life of justice before God, we must, we must come to the rescue of true victims. We must come to the rescue of true victims. God says through the prophet Jeremiah, do justice and righteousness. Deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. It's not just talking about of property. But those who have been robbed of the dignity that God intended for them when he created them in his image. We've got to be able to clearly identify who is, so, our culture is so messed up that we can't tell the difference between victims and victimizers anymore. We, we can't tell the difference. 
Proverbs chapter 31 tells us that we need to defend those who cannot help themselves. Yes, speak up for the poor and the helpless. Literally those who are incapable of helping themselves. And see that they get justice. We've got to be able to identify them. I know that this is an issue that crosses genders. But I want to speak to men for a minute. Our world today is filled with males who are not men and do not know how to be men. And it is going to take some godly men where they live, work, and play standing up and making a stand for the helpless. Standing up and taking a very clear stand on everything from simple off-color jokes that could demean somebody else to if you find out harassment I, I, had, I had a gentleman in our church come up to me and said Joe you took me back 15 years ago when a woman that I was a peer in a working relationship with came and told me about harassment that was taking place in her life and he said he said I'm ashamed to say that I tried to help her I told her to do some things but what I should have done was gone and got in that guy's face now, be careful how you do that, you know. But sometimes this will require that men of God rise up in a spirit of gentleness with Christ-like goals. But there are lots of males out there who need to become men if we're going to see injustice changed, especially on the issue that we've addressed today. Through the prophet Zechariah, God says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. And as you're doing that, show kindness and mercy to one another. And do not oppress. Sometimes when we get in the middle of these streams of injustice, we start oppressing people. It becomes so easy. See, we as the people of God need to provide pathways for ways of escape for victims. We need to provide pathways of protection so that victimizers can no longer have access to victims. As people of God, we need to provide pathways of healing that include restorative justice so that that can come to the victim. So that they can reclaim the authority and the power that comes from knowing they're created in the image of God. They can reclaim that. That has been violated and stolen from them. That's God's plan. I told you that I, I, I talked with Cindy a little bit about this before I, I brought this message. And just asked for her thoughts and counsel. And Cindy shared a story and told, gave me permission to share it here today. Um, and many of you know this. She, she shared this in lots of environments. Um, Cindy was abused when she was younger. Um, and that abuse took place at the hands of uh, a relative. And uh, he eventually no longer was a part of the family. But um, when her sister died, uh, her sister uh, was a part of a, a community and there was this center that she would go to. And at this center, they wanted to do a memorial service for her. And this guy called and asked, could he come to this event? And they had invited Cindy and her family to come. And so they called Cindy and said, can, can he come? And she said, have him call me. Um, well, she gets, he calls her. Uh, she takes the call. And her dad was with her that day. And I don't think he took the phone from you, did he? He, he wrestled it from, yeah, he took the phone from Cindy. Um, and he answered the phone. And he basically, um, I'm just going to say it this way. He protected Cindy. He acted as her dad, as her protector. And he let the guy know pretty quickly where he stood from this day forward. Um, and then he gave the phone to Cindy. And God gave Cindy the ability in that moment to tell him, no, you cannot come. And in that moment, when she was being protected, God, Cindy says, restored power back into her life. It, he gave her back the authority that this person had robbed from her, had stolen from her. Restorative justice works that way. 
And we need to seek to partner with God to bring about restorative justice in the lives of people who have been violated and robbed. In Genesis chapter 38, um, I, I really thought we would spend more time there. We don't have time to do that, but I would encourage you to go read it. It's a story about one of the greats in the lineage of, of Jesus, Judah, and his interaction with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And it is a horrid, wretched story. And out of his authority and power, he abuses his daughter-in-law. And out of that abuse, he eventually gets to the place where he wants to put her away. So much so that he basically has her charged, found guilty, and is about to burn her to death. I mean, that was the sentence he chose to render. And God brought about a public humiliation of Judah in Genesis chapter 38. He, he is publicly humiliated and he does something interesting. Judah publicly repents. He confesses that this, and this is the way he said it in Genesis 38, 26. She is more righteous than I am. That was part of his public profession here. Confession of what he had done. She is more, she is right with God and I am not. And we could go into that a lot more, but it's interesting when you get over to the Gospel of Matthew and you find out that one of Jesus' great, 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 great grandmothers was Tamar. Talk about restoring what was taken away. God restores the dignity of his children. The last way that I can see that you and I can be engaged with God, to live a life of justice before God is this. This one's going to sound a little strange, and I just need a half second to unpack it. If you want to do that, you've got to first expand your worship, your affection, your love for the God of justice. One of the great scriptures describing the heart of God, we've already read, it's from Psalm 146, verses 5 through 7. And it talks about this God who wants to execute. I mean, he wants to enact justice for the oppressed. He wants to set prisoners free. That is our God. He is good and right and perfect in all of his ways. He, he, he does this. He enacts justice. For those who are oppressed. That's who and what he does. His heart is full for doing that. Everywhere injustice exists, it is on the heart of God to overcome that. And this isn't a matter of us just running out of the building and starting to tackle every injustice we come in, in contact with. See, because Psalms 146 starts with this in verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. This incredible psalm about the justice of God starts with the worship of that God. If you and I are ever going to become people who truly want to see justice done on this planet because we can get this so screwed up. If we ever want to become those people, it starts out of a heart of worship. If you want to see the culture change, if you want to be uh, someone who makes disciples, who makes disciples to change the world, it starts by expanding your heart of worship, your affection for the Lord. And promoting his worship everywhere you go. Promoting the beauty of the gospel of Jesus everywhere you go. That will ultimately lead to the destruction of injustice. But it starts with a heart of worship. He is the Lord God Almighty. He is righteous and just in all of his ways. And if you want to be a part of a movement to change our world and overcome injustice everywhere it exists, worship God like you've never worshiped him before. Let's pray. Father, through the prophet Amos, you declared, let justice flow like a river. Let righteousness run like a flowing stream. Father, I pray that you would plant that deep in our hearts, that vision. Plant in our hearts so deep, God, your, your compassion for the powerless. Your compassion for the marginalized, for the oppressed. 
We come now in this moment, God, believing you to be the God who wants to let justice roll. We come to worship you with our hearts. We come to worship you with our giving, oh God. And we pray that you will take these tithes and these offerings and you would multiply them and magnify them in such a way that they help root out injustice in our culture, where we live, work, and play, everywhere, God. And Father, we come now believing that if we are to be your people, people who love justice like you do, that our hearts have to first be drawn in new and fresh ways to you. So help us, God, as we come to worship the God who wants justice to roll like waters everywhere. And it's in your name we pray. Thanks for listening. If you're in North Charleston this Sunday, please consider visiting us at our 9.30 or 11 o'clock services. We'd love to see you. Again, for more information, visit riverbluff.org. Now go change the world.